For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Today, our topic is the last battle. That, of course, means Bentonville in North Carolina, March 1865. No, it means Appomattox in Virginia in April 1865. No, not that either. How about CSS Shenandoah in the wastes of the North Pacific, fighting Union ships months after the shooting stopped on land? No, it's not that either. It's the Battle of United States versus Lee, and the battleground is the United States Supreme Court. Our guest, Anthony J. Goggin, is the author of The Last Battle of the Civil War, United States versus Lee, 1861 to 1883, and we'll find out about this fascinating legal encounter today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system or UNC job training enterprise, as some would uh, have it. We'll say a word about that momentarily. Uh, but not speaking for the UNC system, certainly not speaking for the governor or the state legislature, uh, nor for ECU or even the history department, just for me. This is my opinion. My guest will give his own as we talk about the Civil War era on Civil War talk radio. It is a Beautiful, clear Friday afternoon in January, last Friday of January 2013. It's a midpoint of the ninth season of Civil War Talk Radio. It's cold outside by local standards. It's below, and brace yourself, below 40 degrees. People are walking around in states of confusion, some of them bundled up absurdly, others still wearing shorts and flip-flops because they cannot comprehend, apparently, the students that the weather has gotten cold, uh, but it's it's considered Arctic here when the temperature gets anywhere close to the freezing mark. So uh, to those of those of you from elsewhere, uh, 
from less temperate zones, you will perhaps find that as amusing as the transplanted Yankees like myself do here. One thing I've certainly learned is there's nothing the locals enjoy more than having northern people talk to them about how cold it is where we come from. Uh, they could just listen to the, us do that for hours. Uh, so I'm going to stop doing it now because really everybody's had enough of it. Uh, but we are back here at Civil War Talk Radio for the winter term. We've got good shows coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, uh, February 8th, Brian Dirk, uh, who was scheduled to be on last fall, will be on for sure this time. I'll, I'll make sure I don't mess up. Then he'll be talking about uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, and the concept of whiteness. Uh, Lincoln as a white American, it, it may sound uh, academically uh, precious or, or uh, uh, fanciful in some way, but there are some interesting insights to be gained, and I, I think you will find it as, hopefully as interesting as I did reading the book. On February 15th, Barbara Gannon joins us to talk about the Wan cause. We hear a lot about the lost cause. What about the winners? We'll hear from stories of Union veterans and what they believe the war was about and how they interpreted it in the 19th century. On February 22nd, Tony Horwitz, known to everyone listening to this show as the author of Confederates in the Attic. We'll ask him about that, but also about his uh, more recent book on John Brown. And then a month from now, March 1st, Doug Batson will be kicking off a tour of North Carolina sites where he will be doing... uh, uh, doing his work presenting the story of D.H. Hill, a first-person presenter. There are plenty of Abraham Lincoln presenters. They have their own association. Uh, I've seen it with my own eyes, a hundred Lincolns in one room. There are people who uh, do uh, impressions, uh, presentations of Robert E. Lee, of uh, Frederick Douglass, of other famous figures of the Civil War era. But I believe uh, this is the only D.H. Hill presenter and uh, it'll be interesting to hear how one how one presents a mid-level Confederate figure, uh, what what leeway that gives you, and what disadvantages. So that'll be uh, March first as we go forward. Well, you can find out about these things as always from the companion website for the show www.impedimentsofwar.org that will give you links to the World Talk Radio website where the files are kept and if you go there now you will see I am told by reliable sources an upgrade in the World Talk Radio website Mark Gaffney our webmaster has been hard at work upgrading the World Talk Radio site with new graphics, new uh, whatever it is one does on a website. So please take a look at that and uh, let me know what you think. It, it's a, a wonderful contribution to the show that Mark gives us each week by keeping the website up to date. And now he's added to his portfolio the uh, work on the World Talk radio website itself. So uh, lots going on here. Uh, as always, you can contribute to World Talk Radio, which is not a charity, not a 501c3, uh, purely a self-interested, uh, blatant money grab on my part. Uh, but if you send $20 to the show using the PayPal button on impedimentsofwar.org, 
I'll send you a copy of one of my books and be happy to sign it for you if you like. I'm still catching up a backlog from the end of last year, so if you still haven't gotten a book and are ready to call the cops, just keep in mind that my promise is entirely unenforceable. Uh, it's just a donation, and I'll send the book when I get around to it. What a terrible thing to say. I'll, I'll send it as quickly as possible. Uh, I do appreciate the support, and I especially appreciate uh, any comments or suggestions you have for the show, ideas about people to be on, uh, books you've read, uh, authors you're aware of, performers you've seen, anybody you'd like to hear more from. Uh, I've gotten some excellent suggestions over the last week or two and made some uh, email inquiries and try, tried to line up some new folks. So please go ahead and do that. If you're in the North Carolina region and want to get your World Talk, your Civil War Talk Radio fix live, uh, stop by the state capitol, Raleigh. Uh, let's see, not next Saturday, a week from Saturday, the 16th, I guess it would be. Uh, February 16th, uh, I will be giving a talk on emancipation and the 13th Amendment at uh, somewhere, I think, uh, the state archives. I, this is really bad publicity. We'll hold on here a minute. We'll look at the actual document here, and it turns out it's... Uh, looks like it's at the Museum of the State Archives. There we are. February 16th from 1 to 2 o'clock, State Archives of North Carolina, 109 East Jones Street, sponsored by the Friends of the Archives and State Archives Civil War 150 Committee. They'll be showing glory the next day. Uh, that would be worth staying for. And they have a an exhibit of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation uh, coming up that they're borrowing from the National Archives uh, in May and June at the North Carolina Museum of History. So I'm going to be joining them to talk about emancipation and particularly the 13th Amendment, which is central to the movie, the Lincoln movie, that is still uh, being talked about. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, then you wouldn't be listening to the show probably. So... Uh, most of you have and have your ideas about it, but uh, go take a look. I do encourage uh, you to do that and tell me what you think. So that's what we're doing, where we're going. Uh, we I, I mentioned the one-liner about Job Training Center. Uh, apparently national attention is being paid to the governor of North Carolina and his recent comments on a radio interview about the purpose of the UNC system being to uh, create jobs to uh, or train students to have jobs and that uh, if people want to take courses and useless things like uh, gender studies was the example he gave, uh, they can go to a private school and do that. Uh, but the, at a public school, you have to take courses that will directly get you a job. And without venturing long into politics, I would just note, besides the uh, very curious class-based argument that only uh, wealthy people should be able to become uh, liberally educated at private schools, uh, there is the, the inherent falsehood that somehow history and the liberal arts don't prepare you for a job. I've got a job. Uh, many people I know have jobs. Many of us who have liberal arts training have jobs in something other than what we trained in, 
because many of the jobs that existed in the 1970s aren't there anymore, and there's many jobs no one thought of in the 70s that are here today. But history is still here, and I predict history will still be around uh, 30 years from now and 3,000 years from now, whereas you know, hospitality management may no longer be necessary once we've all morphed into uh, different life forms that don't require hospitality. We'll still have a history. So uh, uh, we're, we're all a little concerned about what our governor believes the purpose of higher education is, and we're hoping that it doesn't uh, affect us too deeply and directly in terms of, of budget and, uh, and other issues. Uh, in the meantime, we will continue to teach history and uh, uh, incidentally prepare our students to get good jobs. So, well, you didn't tune in to hear that. Uh, I apologize, but it's been at the forefront of everybody's mind here on campus and throughout the system. And indeed, I'm seeing email commentary from around the country uh, about this because there are many people who who have different views of what higher education is for as we go forward into the 21st century, and it, it's not going to go away. But let's go back to the 19th century now and talk about The Last Battle of the Civil War, uh, a book by that title, the subtitle United States versus Lee, 1861-1883, uh, written by Anthony J. Goggin. Uh, Mr. Goggin, are you there? Uh, yes, I am, Jerry. Ah, good. Uh, you go by Tony, is that I correct? do. Uh, and, and, and do call me Jerry. Did I pronounce your last name right? You did. Ah, that's, that's, uh, that I, somebody once mispronounced my name, and I've, I've still not gotten over it, so I take, <laughs> I try to take care to get it right. Oh, I appreciate it. Yes, it's not phonetic. My uh, grandparents were Irish immigrants, and I think in Ireland the name was pronounced Gone, uh, G-O-N-E, but in, here in America it turned into Goggin. And it's spelled for, for our listeners, G-A-U-G-H-A-N. So when you go to get a copy of this book from your bookseller or online or in person, it's G-A-U-G-H-A-N is the author. So, uh, Tony, this book crosses the intersection of history and law, which are two particular interests of, of mine, uh, as well as yours, apparently. Tell us a little bit about your, your background in those fields. Sure, Jerry. I'm a uh, law professor at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, where uh, you mentioned the temperature in North Carolina right now. I, I have to tell you the temperature here in Des Moines is 6 degrees. There uh, we go. So quite cold <laughs> here. Um, but in any event, my uh, Ph.D. is in history. Um, I went to the University of Wisconsin, and I also have a law degree, and I teach civil procedure here at Drake as well as uh, legal and constitutional history. And so this book really does represent a combination of my background in law and my strong interest in history. Did I gather correctly from your introduction that your law degree is from Harvard? Uh, yes. That I, I raise that because uh, I haven't done that yet this season, but longtime listeners are aware that one of the perks of the show is I get to remind people I have a Harvard degree uh, at every opportunity. And so this is one of those opportunities. We both have a Harvard degree. It's good for us. That's right. So I uh, should add that I also have a master's in history from Louisiana State University. So my uh, education and training has occurred on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. And and LSU is, is uh, which is the publisher of your book, I see, uh, LSU Press. Yes, it uh, is. LSU Press and UNC Press are the two leading academic presses for Civil War books. I don't think there's much... 
argument about that. Uh, so it, it's certainly an impressive place uh, to to work. Was uh, Bill Peterson teaching at LSU, or is, is he at uh, one of the satellite campuses? I, uh, I believe. Does that name ring a bell? Uh, it does not. Um, he may have come after. I was there from '94 to '97. Okay, that uh, and he might well be be at one of the other places. Um, Bill Cooper, uh, Charlie Royster, and Gaines Foster. Uh, when I was at LSU, were the three leading nineteenth-century um, Southern historians um, at LSU. Well, that is an, an all-star list. Certainly, uh, anyone who hasn't read Charles Royster's *The Destructive War* has. Uh, uh, has to go back and review that certainly, and uh, uh, and, and Gaines Foster, the Ghost of the Confederacy, really started uh, practically the whole memory thing in terms of Civil War studies. So yes, that's right. You, you've got some good people there. Um, so you, which did you do first? How, how did you go about the law history transition? Well, I uh, got my PhD in history in two thousand two. And um, at that time, there was a uh, very, you know, a very significant glut in the academic market for historians. I don't know that that's changed all that it has significantly not. Um, last decade. And it always had a strong interest in law. There are a number of uh, lawyers in my family, so I went ahead and went to law school. And uh, when I went to law school, I went with the intention of getting back into academia because I love teaching, I love research and writing. And I ended up in private practice in law for five years, in part because when I went to uh, the law firm, I also had just joined the U.S. Navy Reserve, and I ended up getting an all-expenses-paid one-year trip to the Middle East, courtesy of Uncle Sam. And my law firm was absolutely great when I was to me and my family when I was overseas, so I really felt like I owed them a couple more years when I came back. Uh, so that's why I ended up uh, spending more time in private practice than I had anticipated. But it's actually ended up being quite helpful uh, when it comes to teaching civil procedure and federal courts and jurisdiction and the other courses that I teach in law. So although it wasn't exactly the path that I had planned, I think things worked out well. Which was harder intellectually for you, uh, more, more challenging, the law, law school or the graduate history program? I think they're, they're both quite challenging. I think the first year of law school is as intellectually rigorous as any experience anywhere in academia. Mm -hmm. But I would say I found my years of uh, graduate training in history to be more enjoyable. I think law school is very tough, um, especially that first year, whereas I found my academic experience in history to be um, one that I just thoroughly enjoyed uh, from start to finish. Um, So they were both intellectually challenging, um, but I would say that, uh, on balance, the, that first year of law school is definitely the, the um, most challenging experience I've had in academia. I, I would echo that. I had had I went about it the other order, but I had I would say exactly the same thing. The first year of law school is is boot camp uh, for the mind, and right there, there's nothing quite like it. it. And doing it the other way around, it made grad school seem I would never say easy, but uh, but it held no terrors. Uh, because of what I'd been through uh, the first way, but my experience certainly was that both experience, both of them helped e- each other, and, and it sounds like you found the same thing that, that uh, they were complementary. Yes, indeed. Um, 
in part because of the, the heavy emphasis on research and writing, uh, both in law and in history. And um, the reality is in law, there's a huge emphasis on the historical development of the law, both the common law and, of course, constitutional law. So I found, um, so I did another, um, um, I went to law school after going to graduate school. I really found that that graduate training I'd had in history was quite helpful in my um, law school career and also in the practice of law because having an understanding of how we got to where we are is uh, immensely helpful. And it's interesting, I listen to your lead-in, Jerry, uh, regarding the, this whole question of liberal arts education and mm-hmm. whether students are adequately trained. I think there's no um, price tag you could possibly put on the value of a broad training in liberal arts, even though you, it's harder to draw a line from A to B regarding how you take that education you've got in, in a, a liberal arts context and converted it into a sort of financial bottom line in the professional marketplace, I think that does not mean that liberal arts aren't hugely important because they are, and there's something that people draw upon uh, for their entire lives. And, and among other things, they take it and go to law school uh, or graduate school or other things, but that, that's certainly the case. Well, you, how did you come to this topic? Uh, we'll just touch on that and take a break in a moment, but, but how did you... When did you first encounter U.S. versus Lee? I stumbled upon the topic in law school. I needed to find a topic for my 3.0 paper, which just means the paper that you write as sort of a capstone to your third year of law school. And because I had extensive, had read extensively in 19th century American history and have a lifelong love of the Civil War, I was curious to see if I could find a topic that would involve both relevant legal issues and um, a significant amount of history background, and I just stumbled across this. I don't recall where I first learned of the fact that the government had seized Arlington from um, Robert E. Lee's wife, Mary Lee, Uh, but not long after learning that, I realized that this could be a topic that would be of interest to readers outside of uh, legal scholarship because of the inherent importance of Arlington National Cemetery and the drama of the Civil War and the unique relationship between the family of Robert E. Lee and the United States government. So I don't know the exact origin of when my interest in the topic began, but I know it did not take that long before I realized that I had something here that could be an interesting book. Well, you certainly do have that, and this is uh, an interesting book, which... uh, the unwary reader might be put off thinking it's going to be a dry legal history. Uh, it, it's far from that, and we'll get into what happened at Arlington uh, during the Civil War and after. We'll take a short break first, come right back and talk more with our guest, Anthony J. Goggin, author of The Last Battle of the Civil War, United States versus Lee, 1861-1883. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market 
Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Anthony J. Goggin, author of the Last Battle of the Civil War, United States versus Lee, 1861-1883. It's the story of the legal struggle of the family of Robert E. Lee to recover the estate, the family estate at Arlington, Virginia, uh, from the United States government, or at least to recover title to it uh, or compensation for that. To understand uh, this case, and it, it's its ramifications. We we should go back to the start. We uh, talked about uh, law and history and liberal arts and deep subjects in our first segment, but we really uh, need to dive into what happened at Arlington. Uh, Tony, could you first talk about what what is Arlington? Where is it, and why is it uh, important? Sure, uh, Jerry. Arlington National Cemetery uh, sits on the Virginia side of the Potomac River directly across the river from the National Mall. And in the middle of the cemetery is Arlington House, which is a mansion that was constructed by George Washington Park Custis, the grandson of Martha Washington, 200 years ago. And the estate was held by and owned by the Custis family until 1861 when the property was seized by the U.S. Army in the opening days of the Civil War. And the location of the estate was crucial to the decision to seize and occupy it. Arlington, if you've been to Arlington National Cemetery, um, one of the striking features of the cemetery is the fact that it sits on heights that look down on the National Mall, particularly at the location of Arlington House. In fact, two years ago I gave a couple of public talks at Arlington House um, in the evening. It was the first time I'd ever been to Arlington National Cemetery after dark. And the view of the National Mall and the National Capitol from Arlington House is absolutely spectacular um, after dark. It's very, very impressive. But that also meant that Arlington posed a threat to the White House and the National Capitol because even with the technology of the 1860s, Civil War cannon posted at Arlington could have struck the White House and uh, you know, certainly siege artillery could have struck the Capitol building. And in the, 
the moment that Virginia seceded from the Union, Arlington became enemy territory because it sits within the borders of the state of Virginia. So it became enemy territory to the Lincoln administration, to the United States government. And so that's sort of the origins of why Arlington was so important. It really stems from its geographic location uh, and the fact that it's so close to the White House and the Capitol building. So there, there was no doubt when the war began that the Union troops would have to occupy that just to keep keep the president and the Capitol safe from, from artillery fire. But the, the Arlington House, well, one thing that struck me was that the map uh, you have showing the Arlington estate, it's not an estate like uh, like my neighbors might have in, in the Brook Valley neighborhood of uh, Greenville, North Carolina. It's it's big. Uh, that, that's the estate right. is huge. That's right. It's 1,100 acres. So this was a huge property. And indeed, uh, as far as I know, all 1,100 acres are today U.S. government property. Most of it's Arlington National Cemetery, but there also is a U.S. Army presence at Fort Myer. Um, so this estate was so big, it was able to, to this day, accommodates the most famous military cemetery, certainly in the United States and possibly in the world. Um, as well as an operating military facility. And the estate extended uh, from Arlington House all the way to what today is the parking lot of the Pentagon. So if you know Washington, D.C., that gives you a sense of just how sprawling the Arlington estate was. So that also gives a sense of the value. This is this is a lot of land, and it's, it's really worth something. Now, Robert E. Lee, this was not his ancestor home. This was his wife's family's property. Did he ever live there? Yes, um, that's exactly right. The estate was owned by uh, Robert E. Lee's father-in-law, and then after his father-in-law, Park Custis, died in 1857, Robert E. Lee's wife, Mary Lee, became the legal, legal owner of Arlington. It acted, though, Arlington House um, acted as the family's primary residence from the time of the Lee's marriage, Robert E. Lee and Mary Lee's marriage in the early 1830s, all the way up until May of 1861, uh, when Virginia seceded from the Union and the uh, Union Army seized the property. And uh, Robert E. Lee wrote very uh, passionately about his love of the estate and the fond memories that he had of it. And for Mary Lee, the estate was really a, oh, virtually a, a part of her being because she'd spent almost her entire life living there. And the trauma of losing the estate was such that Mary Lee never fully recovered emotionally uh, from the devastation of first losing the property and then, of course, the, the purpose to which the, the property was put when it became the National Cemetery, which, of course, for all of us, Arlington is hallowed ground, um, an extraordinarily special place. But for Mary Lee, she thought of it, of course, primarily as her family home. And so the fact that the government ultimately made the decision to turn it into a cemetery during the Civil War was another blow to Mary Lee. That was an intentional blow. Uh, did the, It was not just random that they said, oh, we, we need a place for a cemetery. How about this? Uh, they must have known this would affect the Lee family. Uh, yes, indeed they did. The, the person who was primarily responsible for converting the estate into, or at least for the idea of converting the estate 
into a cemetery was General Montgomery Meggs, who is one of the, in some ways, unsung heroes of the Civil War and the Union war effort. Uh, Meggs was a quartermaster general of the Union Army and did an absolutely brilliant job of supplying the Army, the Union armies, as they invaded the, the 11 Confederate states during the Civil War. And so Meggs had tremendous credibility within the Lincoln administration. He was held in very high regard, rightfully so, in terms of his uh, abilities. But Meggs also had a very strong personal animus towards Union Army officers, or sorry, United States Army officers, who chose to side with the Confederacy during the Civil War. And, of course, Robert E. Lee was one of those officers. Lee had a very long and distinguished career in the U.S. Army. In fact, Lee was a graduate of West Point. Lee was, um, as I'm sure your listeners know, Lee was offered command of the Union Army by President Lincoln during the opening days of the Civil War. And Lee famously and uh, reluctantly declined to uh, accept the um, offer that was made to him. And, of course, the rest, as they say, is history once he joined the Confederacy. Montgomery Meigs was aware of all that history when he made... Uh, the proposal that Arlington be converted into a national cemetery. And also, it it should be noted, there was a public health crisis of the first order in the nation's capital by the midway point of the Civil War, because as the war escalated into the largest and bloodiest conflict in American history, the dead and wounded soldiers uh, from the Army of the Potomac were sent up to D.C. Uh, by rail, for the most part, uh, to await uh, their transportation to hospitals and cemeteries in the north. And the sheer volume of soldiers um, and, and uh, dead young men who were being sent into D.C. swamped the cities, swamped the city completely. And the, the Lincoln administration realized that they needed to find a burial site uh, that could accommodate the. Uh, devastating toll of casualties um, that was being incurred by the Union Army in the Virginia Theater. And it was at that point that General Meggs recommended to President Lincoln that Arlington be converted into an estate. And when he made that recommendation, uh, the evidence suggests that he pointed out the fact that there would be a, a poetic justice in the view of the Lincoln administration that the estate that was going to be converted into this great national cemetery was the estate of the family of the leading Confederate general. So the symbolism of turning Robert E. Lee's family's estate into a, a national cemetery was certainly lost on no one in the Lincoln administration. In addition to using Arlington as a cemetery, uh, there were other people besides the Lee, uh, immediate Lee family living on the property. Of course, there were the many people who worked uh, for the Lees, the, the enslaved uh, community. What happened to them? Yes, indeed. Uh, this is one of the really fascinating parts of the story that was a surprise to me. I was completely unaware of the fact that prior to Arlington's conversion into a national cemetery, a portion of the estate was turned into a refugee camp for runaway slaves that was called Freedman's Village. And the cemetery, sorry, the village was formally dedicated in a public ceremony in 1863 by leading figures in the administration as well as in Congress. And the village was intended not only to provide a home 
for runaway slaves, but also to be a place where the freed slaves could uh, learn uh, particular trades. They could be prepared to make the transition into uh, a life of freedom after uh, having spent their uh, prior lives in a condition of slavery. So Freedman's Village really was an ambitious effort on the part of the Lincoln administration to provide to create a model for how the government could assist the freedmen and women in making the transition into um, uh, the post-emancipation time period. But of course, as uh, events unfolded, Arlington soon became known and or soon became understood by the public solely as a place of uh, the or solely as the national cemetery that. Uh, Arlington, the estate's role as a um, village and as a place where uh, freed persons could be um, helped and assisted in uh, becoming citizens of the country soon got pushed to the side as the uh, cemetery emerged as the really the crown jewel of the national cemetery system. Now, in taking over Arlington, when one first reads about this, you think, oh, okay, soldiers move in, take over cut down some trees, fortify the border, make it a defensible spot. Uh, you don't think anything of it, but it is, it, it may be private property, but it's the enemy's private property from the Union perspective. And if you're reading about World War II, you don't think about American soldiers in uh, Germany worrying about the property damage that's happening incidental to the combat. That's just too bad. You started a war, this is what you get. But from what your book says, the Fifth Amendment, which allows the government to take property but requires the government to compensate owners if they do so, uh, would apply even in wartime to property uh, that the government needs to fight the war. Does, yeah. that, does that apply to enemy property as well? I mean, to, to, would Sherman have to pay for all the buildings in Atlanta under that rule? Well, no. The, the key distinction um, with regard to Arlington was the fact that the government was not simply seizing the property as a national security measure for the duration of the conflict, but rather the government was claiming permanent title to the estate. Um, so that would be a contrast with war damage done elsewhere where the government's intention was not to hold the city of Atlanta and convert it into public property. Uh, in the case of Arlington, once the decision was made to turn the estate into a national cemetery, the Lincoln administration recognized they needed a legal way to claim permanent title to this property. But they, of course, did not want to find themselves in a position in the middle of the Civil War of having to pay compensation to the wife of the general whose army was primarily responsible for the deaths of the, the soldiers who um, were being buried at Arlington National Cemetery. So the political ramifications of paying, of complying with the Fifth Amendment were such that the Lincoln administration decided to find an alternative means of claiming permanent title to the property. And the way that they came up with was a tax seizure. What happened was early in the war, the Congress enacted a direct land tax on property in the Confederate states. 
And the Lincoln administration realized that they could use that tax to seize Arlington, assuming that the Lees would not make an effort to pay the tax. And that would have, you can imagine that that must have seemed like a, a logical assumption to the Lincoln administration because the Lees, of course, were in a state of war at that point with the United States government. And the idea of the Lees attempting to pay the tax on Arlington would, of course, been something that would have been just as politically damaging to the Confederate cause as the act of paying compensation to Robert and Mary Lee during the middle of the Civil War would have been to the Lincoln administration. But as it turned out, the Lincoln administration's assumption that, the, that no effort would be made to pay the tax by the Lees was mistaken. A cousin of Robert E. Lee's named Philip Fendel, a, who was a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and in fact a, a unionist, attempted to pay the tax on the Lee's behalf, in particular on Mary Lee's behalf, since she was the actual property owner. But when Fendel attempted to pay the tax, the tax commissioners at the tax commissioner's office in Alexandria, Virginia, refused to accept the tax payment. They insisted that the actual property owner appear in person to pay the tax on her own behalf. So that had the effect of requiring Mary Lee to travel through Union and Confederate lines and attempt to make payment of the tax on her own behalf in person. Well, of course, that never happened um, because the government would not accept payment by a third party. The property went into tax default, and in... um, 1864, the property was auctioned at a tax sale and purchased by the War Department. So essentially what you had was the Treasury Department seizing title to the property for failure to pay, for the lease failure to pay a tax of $92.07 on Arlington. And then the Treasury Department transferred ownership of the estate to the War Department. We're in our third section, I'm going to ask you about some of the legal principles behind all this, but uh, the astute listener is already thinking, uh, I'm sure, you're saying an 1,100-acre estate was seized to pay under $100 of taxes, to which the answer is yes. Uh, Those who know something about 19th century uh, women's rights might observe that, yes, Mary Custis Lee is the owner by inheritance, so she's the one who has to pay the tax, but uh, as a married woman, she is a non-person. She can't do anything. Only her husband can act for her. So only she can pay the tax, and she cannot pay the tax. So it's a, a paradox. Nobody can pay this tax. Uh, and then the rule that you have to pay it in person is nowhere found in the law. It was made up by the tax collectors. So we've got a lot of problems with this, and we'll come back in the third section and, and see how these uh reflect the attempt of the Leeds to get their uh, estate back after the war. We'll do that in our conversation today with Anthony J. Goggin, author of The Last Battle of the Civil War, United States versus Lee, 1861-1883. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel. 
where the world comes to listen and talk. best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are. Thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Come play with us. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Anthony J. Goggin, author of The Last Battle of the Civil War. It's a book about the legal effort of the family of Robert E. Lee and Mary Lee to recover title to the land at Arlington, uh, which the Union Army seized in 1861, early in the Civil War, as it overlooked uh, the White House and the Capitol, and then converted into a great national cemetery during the war. So, Tony, when the war ended, the United States government is, is in possession of Arlington. They've built a cemetery. There's no realistic prospect of digging up all these bodies, moving them out, and turning it back into a plantation. But the Lee family does eventually seek compensation for their loss what uh, given what everything we've talked about thus far the fact that uh, the fifth amendment does apply that that there's no right to seize the land without compensation that it was seized under a tax law that was questionable at best and enforced capriciously uh, how did the US government defend itself from the argument that uh, you owe us for our land well, uh, Jerry, there was no challenge made to the seizure of Arlington by the government until after the death of Robert E. Lee. Uh, Robert E. Lee had no interest in engaging in a legal battle with the United States government, uh, which would have only prolonged uh, the divisiveness of the war years. And so when Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee died in December of 1870, the way was cleared for Mary Lee to attempt to persuade Congress to pay compensation to her. And she did um, through uh, the actions of uh, friends of the Lees in Congress, uh, a particular Southern senator from uh, the state of Virginia, uh, offered a petition uh, for relief on behalf of Mary Lee. Uh, Those petitions were always turned aside. And, in fact, when a senator from Kentucky uh, did the same on Mary Lee's behalf, it triggered a very emotional 
debate on the floor of the U.S. Senate, and it really wasn't so much of a debate as it was a condemnation by numerous senators of Robert E. Lee's actions during the Civil War. And uh, this um, event occurred a couple of weeks after Robert E. Lee had died in December of 1870. And the fury uh, expressed by the senators in their opposition to the payment of any kind of compensation to Mary Lee was such that Mary Lee herself was discouraged from attempting any direct uh, legal challenge to the seizure of Arlington. And the story would have remained um, one in which there was no legal dispute until George Washington uh, custosly, Mary and Robert E. Lee's oldest son, decided in 1870 to file suit both challenging the uh, due process violation that occurred when the government seized Arlington on the basis of an invalid tax sale and the um, takings clause violation when the government failed to pay just compensation to Mary Lee for having seized her property. The case was heard in federal court in Virginia, and the jury ruled in favor of Custis Lee. And then in 1882... The case went to the United States Supreme Court, and that's where we end up with the case of the United States v. Lee as a major case in the development of constitutional law in the 19th century, in particular, the law of sovereign immunity. Now, the, the principle of sovereign immunity is that the, the, the nation, the, the sovereign, the, the country, the king, wherever the, the basis of power lies, since that's the source of all the rights, uh, no one can sue the sovereign because any right you have is, is a right you got from the sovereign, so you can't use that right against the sovereign. Uh, in other words, nobody can sue the country. But people sue the government all the time, and they must have done it then, too, no? Uh, yes, that's right, Jerry. The difference um, between then and now is the fact that in the 19th century, there were not federal statutes that expressly permitted uh, parties with grievances against the government um, to bring suit. As a result, in the 19th century, if you had a claim against the government, the way you did it was you sued the government officers who had dispossessed you of property or had committed some kind of tort that caused you injury, rather than suing the government by name. And indeed, when Custis Lee brought suit against the the U.S. government. He did not name the United States as defendant. The case was not originally the case of Lee v. United States. It was a case of Lee v. Kaufman and Strong. Kaufman was the superintendent of Arlington National Cemetery, and Strong was the army officer uh, in command of the garrison. And therefore, by bringing suit against the government's officers, Custis Lee did not violate the principle of sovereign immunity because he had not named the United States as a defendant. The only reason why the United States government actually gets directly involved in the case is because the Attorney General of the United States intervened during the lower court proceeding and made the argument that Lee's suit was barred by the doctrine of sovereign immunity, which we've just been discussing. The lower federal court dismissed that argument on the grounds that it was a long-standing practice of American law that this officer suit exception permitted plaintiffs to use an indirect route to seek a remedy from the government when they had a claim. But General or Attorney General Devins argued that the court should expand the 
definition of sovereign immunity to cover the government's officers as well as the government itself. And that fundamentally was the issue that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on in December of 1882 because the justices of the Supreme Court all recognized that the tax sale was invalid. In fact, there were two previous Supreme Court cases, one in 1869 and one in 1873, where the Supreme Court struck down all of the tax sales that were made um, under the statute that the government used to seize the Arlington estate. So, so the only issue that really comes before the Supreme Court, or at least the, in, in the main case of uh, U.S. v. Lee, is does the United States have sovereign immunity that prevents anyone, any of its citizens, from suing it? That's right. And... Up to now, up to that time, people had gotten around it by suing officers, not the government itself. But here's the real test. Can you sue the government? If the government wins, then we have we as citizens have no recourse against the government in court, ever. That's exactly right. In fact, that's what the majority uh, pointed out, that the uh, five justices ruled in favor of Custis Lee, so he wins the case. But four justices ruled against him. They, they argued that the government should enjoy blanket immunity. And one of the things that the majority pointed out was that if the dissenters had had their way, it would have had the effect of rendering much of the Bill of Rights null and void. Certainly the takings clause um, under which Custis Lee sued would have been rendered void if you had a right to just compensation, but you had no legal recourse to seek a remedy when that right was violated. The uh, the origin of the sovereign immunity doctrine, as you note, is in English law, that the king is sovereign and, and thus he can do no wrong. What he does is, that that is the law, so you can't sue him. But in American jurisprudence, the location of Sovereignty is not nearly as, as crystal clear, it, it, but most people would say it resides in the people, not the states or the federal government, uh, exactly. but in we the people. So you can't sue we the people by that, but you could sue the government. The counter-argument is if you can sue the government, the government would come to a standstill if you could just uh, sue over every traffic ticket and uh, tax dispute. Uh, you could paralyze the government. That's right. And today, there are a number of federal statutes, uh, such as the Federal Tort Claims Act and others, that provide specific guidelines under which you can bring a suit, a civil suit, against the government if you have a particular claim. There is no blanket right to sue the government for anything, such as, as you say, a, ta- a traffic ticket. Um, there are limitations um, regarding the jurisdiction of the courts over claims against the federal government. But in general, plaintiffs today do have a basic right to bring suit in most cases when the government seizes property or when the government uh, takes steps that injure a party um, as a result of the government's negligence or some other um, bad act on the part of uh, officers acting on the government's behalf. Now, in 1870, when the the issue first came up in the Senate, uh, a request for compensation, the Senate reacted very harshly, and public opinion in the North supported that. How did the public respond uh, in the 1880s when the Supreme Court said, no, uh, we do have to compensate the Lees? 
the, the public response was surprisingly positive in the North. And it, I think the case really reflects how sectional reconciliation had begun by the early 1880s. And, of course, that doesn't mean everybody was reconciled, far from it. But a critical mass of people, I think on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line by the 1880s, were ready to move on, which was is not to say that they forgot the loved ones they lost in the Civil War, but it is to say that they realized that, as they say, that the earth belongs to the living and that it was time for the country to begin to heal uh, the wounds that were caused during the war years. And in the decades that followed, that view gained momentum. And I think it's fair to say by the early 1900s or late 1890s, certainly in terms of um, public opinion, a clear majority of Americans supported the idea of national reconciliation, national union from the Civil War. So it's an important point to add, as many historians have, uh, that reconciliation was geographical in nature. It was not racial in nature. The, the direction of American history after the Civil War and Reconstruction period was one in which segregation, of course, became a major feature of um, Southern history in the late 19th century and deep into the 20th century, and for that matter, um, de facto segregation in the North was also um, becoming a very clear feature of Northern uh, life and Northern society. So African Americans were excluded from this uh, process of national reunion and sectional reconciliation, as many historians have pointed out, and that's something that always needs to be kept in mind whenever we talk about national reunion after the Civil War. Yeah, and what happened to Freedman's Village? Freedman's Village was closed in 1900. The government paid $75,000 in compensation to the villagers who remained. And the uh, property that was once the village is now part of Arlington National Cemetery. Well, it is a fascinating story, what happened at Arlington and how this case uh, came about. And listeners, if you are not... Uh, a lawyer uh, or a lawyer at heart if you find reading about cases not the thing to do uh, other than to fall asleep at night this book is different you the explanations of the cases i thought were extraordinarily clear and uh, straightforward and you can follow the arguments as this moves through the system and see what how important it was how it reflects the public opinion uh, really uh, a, a a wonderful book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, listeners, you will also want to get a copy. And Tony, I enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me on, Jerry. I appreciate it very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk.